Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 15. This is the next installment in our series, You Are Loved. God's love is persistent. Here's the key concept today. God loves you even when you rebel against Him. God's love is persistent. This is the facet of God's love we're looking at today, and we're going to focus on that facet of God's love by looking at the parable of the prodigal son. And even before we go to that passage, I want you to know that really the focus of the parable of the prodigal son is the lavish love of the father. It could have been called the parable of the father's love. And the parable comes in a particular setting. In the beginning of of chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke, we see the setting. It says this, Now tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You can almost hear the venom in those words, the hatred embedded in those words. The Pharisees see the sinners that they look down on and feel much superior to. They see the sinners as the enemy, so they will have nothing to do with them. But Jesus sees sinners as the victims of the enemy. And they're those that he loves and he cares for. And he responds to that attitude of the Pharisees with three stories recorded in Luke 15 about being lost and then found. The lost sheep who nibbles himself away from safety. The lost coin that is valuable but misplaced. The lost son that's the capstone of the three, the climax of these three parables. The lost son is the story of one who wants to be lost, who's purposefully lost, who chooses to be lost, yet still God loves him. The Father is the character of God the Father there, still loving that lost son. Read it with me. We start in verse 11, and it says this, chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The first lesson we see here that we learn in this story is that God loves you even when you are breaking his heart because the son in this story is breaking the heart of his father. The father represents God the father, and that son of his has no concern for his feelings, no concern about his love. All that son cares about is getting what he calls freedom. He wants to experience freedom the way he defines freedom. And the way he defines freedom is being able to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. No restraints, no controls, nothing hindering him. Freedom, no restraints. Doing whatever I want to do when I want to do it, nobody telling me anything different. Is that your definition of freedom? Because if that's your definition of freedom, you have bought into the cheap, vacuous, Hollywood version of what freedom really is. 
That's the version of freedom that you see on TV. No restraints, no rules, moral anarchy. And that version of freedom will eventually make you its slave. Because that's not true freedom. That's a lie. That's false freedom. This version of freedom gives no thought to consequences of my action on myself or on others. This version of freedom gives no consideration to the fact that we are put on this planet, each of us, with a purpose in mind, and God has that purpose for us. This version of freedom will bring us first to self-indulgence, and then it will trap us in the consequences of our self-indulgence. Freedom. Freedom to run wild. That's not true freedom. Have you ever been with a family whose kids run wild? No restraints on their kids? Somehow or other, the parents just can't control them, whether they never try to or they don't have the ability to? I knew a family like that once. This particular family, they had, they had two children. They did not control their kids at all. Even when they would go over to somebody else's house and the people would be downstairs, maybe socializing or eating around the table, their kids would run wild throughout the house, going into the closets, rummaging through the drawers. The, the parents never stopped the kids from doing anything that they wanted to do. They were absolutely out of control. And after a while, the people in the church began to clue into this, and they stopped inviting this family over to their homes. Of course, that was, you know, you know, eventually that happened. And inevitably what happened is some time went by and I got a note from that family and they said, we're leaving the church. We're leaving the church because the church is not friendly. We want to go to a friendly church. And I thought to myself, good luck with that. <laughs> the kids are out of control. Now, you might think to yourself, well, those kids were free, right? That's the definition of freedom that we see all around us. This running amok without any kind of controls or restraints. But they were not free because what, what was happening was they were becoming slaves to their own impulses, impulses that they couldn't control. Mom and dad never put uh, constraints on the outside, so they had no inner constraints. And they were not able to say no to themselves in their inner world. True freedom is understanding that you are designed to live a certain way and is pursuing that design by the grace of God. It means in true freedom, there still are rules. There still are guidance. But as we choose to follow that guidance, because those guidance comes from God who loves us and knows us and wants our best, that's where we find joy and blessing and true freedom. An illustration that I, I think of is, is, is uh, um, a thing that's out of place. For instance, think for a moment if a bird was flying around in our sanctuary here today. What, what must that bird think? That bird flying around here, maybe at first it thinks, well, this is great. I can fly around this sanctuary. I'm never going to get rained on. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be able to have warmth in the wintertime and, uh, and, and cool in the summertime. There's great freedom here. Uh, I don't see any cats at all. Everything's going to be fine. And so that bird initially might think, this is where I'm going to choose to live. I'm going to, I'm going to be free to live here. But the problem is that not, it's not designed to live here. There's going to be no food for that bird here unless you leave some crumbs behind. There's, going to, there's, there's no other birds here. And soon the bird is going to get lonely and the bird is going to get hungry. And in order to really help that bird, what do I need to do? Well, I need to capture that bird 
and bring it to the out, outdoors where it can truly be free. And when I first start doing that, that bird is going to feel restricted. It's going to feel, feel like it's, it's being constrained from what it wants to do. But it's the only way to get to the place of the freedom that it's designed to experience. And I say that because that is absolutely the truth with all of us. We have to, in a sense, come under the captivity of our Heavenly Father so that He can release us to the true joy that we're meant to have. Now, all of that, however, is foreign from the prodigal son's thinking. He defines free freedom as doing whatever he wants. And right, right now, what he wants to do is get away from his family. And so he comes and he knows he's going to need some money to afford the lifestyle of freedom he wants. And rather than saying, Dad, I'm going to go away and get a job, he says, Dad, I wish you were dead. You know, you're not being dead is getting in the way of me getting my inheritance. So why don't we just kind of skip over that whole thing of you not being dead and you give me my inheritance now so, not, so that I can be free. And even as the father is hearing that, he loves him. And next we see that God loves you when you walk away from him because this son walks away from the father. He takes his inheritance, which would have been one-third of the estate. The older brother gets two-thirds. And in verse 13, it says he goes to a distant country. And there he sows his wild oats. This distant country that he refers to, it's not that the son wants to see the world and see the sights of the world. It's that the son wants to get away as far as he can from the influence of his family. See, he's not only just rejecting his father, he's rejecting the, 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 the heritage of his family because the inheritance primarily would have been land. That's how families handed down the inheritance, the wealth from one generation to the next primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. Now, so that this son had to sell that land probably at a cheap price and get away as far as he could. He rejects the father, he rejects his heritage, and he rejects the values of his father because in verse 13 it says he's, he engaged in loose living. And that loose living eventually caught up with him. And he came under the bondage of the consequences of how he defined freedom. And we see the third thing about the love of God as pictured in the father. God loves you even when you're hurting yourself. Because the father had an idea, I'm sure, about what, the, what his young son wanted to do. He had an idea, I'm sure, about the kind of life that he was living. And it was breaking his heart. You maybe know how it feels to have a loved one who's hurting themselves and the lifestyle that they choose. It is tremendously painful. And the father here is experiencing that, imagining that. And yet he loves his son. And eventually, of course, that definition of freedom brought around the consequences and the son hits rock bottom. And in rock bottom, finally, he gets an idea. I should get a job. But jobs are hard to come by in the economy of the day. And he ends up feeding pigs in a field. Now, you need to understand he's talking to Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He's talking to people who are all about the Jewish rules and regulations. It would have hit them like a ton of bricks that this son is feeding pigs. A Jewish pig farmer is about as low as you can go. But in that state, as low as you could go, he comes to his senses. And he makes some very practical comparisons. He says, you know, the way I'm living and the consequences that I'm reaping, 
I would be better off as a servant in my father's house than what I'm doing here. It's striking to me that that's his first thought. I could be a servant in my father's house because he doesn't yet imagine that he could be a son again in his father's house. He thinks those bridges are burned. He doesn't understand the depth of his father's love for him. So he imagines the only way that I can get up from this low point is to go back, humble myself, and be a servant. And that's his new plan. Change of plan. We're not going to go to the distant country anymore. We're going to go back home. And when I go back home, I'm going to humble myself and try to be a servant. And if that's how the story actually had gone... Jesus would not have been able to make the point that he's making in this parable because the parable is not about a young man who finally clues in that he's got the wrong definition of freedom and he has to work for a paycheck. The parable really is about the exorbitant, expansive, unimaginable love that the Father has for him and that Father picturing God the Father and his love for you and for me. The prodigal love of the Father. You see, we have come to define prodigal as rebellious. We, we, we hear this story and we come to use the word prodigal thinking it means rebellious. Prodigal doesn't mean rebellious. Prodigal means reckless or wasteful. That's the son was wasteful with his father's money and reckless in the way that he spent it. But the father was reckless with the love that he shows his son, almost it bursting over, brimming over with love for his son. The father is prodigal in his love. Let's pick up the story in verse 17. It says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And there we see true repentance in action. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for the bad things that you do. Repentance is turning away from, from those bad things and heading in a new direction. And this son is turning away and heading for home. But there's more to repentance that, than even that. It's feeling sorry for what we do. It's turning away from those things and heading in a new direction. And it is yearning for the good that we will find in God. That's spiritual repentance. Yearning for the good that we will find in God and believing that that good is possible. And I say it that way because you can settle for any pig pen if you think that that's all you're ever going to get. If you don't have a vision for the fact that there is better for me in store, there's more for me in store, if I would only follow God in the way that He has designed me to live, if once, we, once we understand that and yearn for that, then we're truly going to be able to get out of that pig pen. We all have pig pen moments of life, but we have to believe that there's better options out there in order to go for them. And that's exactly what this son does. He believes there's something better. He doesn't understand how much better, but there must be something better in my father's house. And look at verse 20. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The father saw him when he was a long way off. What does that tell you? It tells me that he was looking for him. 
He was scanning the horizon, and he saw, even before he could make out his face, he saw something familiar about the way that 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 person walking, something familiar in their posture, something familiar in the way that they walk, and he recognized his son, and he ran to meet him. And that's a detail that we need to note because in in these days, and pretty much in our days too, important people don't run. You don't see famous people running. They give orders and other people run. That's what the father was used to doing. But here he runs, and I I imagine the servants were just staring at what is going on here. But the, the father has a reason to run, and the reason to run is twofold. First of all, he wants to make sure that his son knows that he's welcomed, and also he wants to be the first one to make that known so that somebody else doesn't meet him first, somebody critical, somebody who would look down on him, somebody who would not be forgiving. The Father wants to demonstrate to all who will see, I want this son to be forgiven. He's made mistakes, but he's come home. He's learned his lesson, and now not only do I welcome him, I forgive him, and we're going to have a party because he's returned. See, it was both an expression of love and protection that the father runs to the son. And so they celebrate. And the son begins to appreciate how much he is loved. Even though he rebelled against the father, even though he hurt himself, even though he broke his father's heart, he is greatly loved. But there's another facet of God's love in this story, a facet that we need to remember in our moments And that is, God loves you when you're selfish because there's selfishness in the story in the person of the elder brother. Pick up the reading in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The elder brother is resentful. The elder brother is Selfish, selfishly resentful, looking at this situation and saying, how does he deserve a party and I don't? I'm the one who stayed and worked all these years. And the elder brother is proof that you can leave the father without leaving the farm because he too was alienated. He too didn't understand the love of the father. He's not happy at all. He pouts over what he considers to be his ill treatment. I mean, where's my party? Now, remember, this... this parable is told to a bunch of Pharisees and teachers of the law, criticizing Jesus for showing compassion to those who weren't living up to their standards. And this elder brother, with his criticism and his fault-finding, he represents the Pharisees. And Jesus, by introducing this character in the story, is saying to the Pharisees, there's a party going on here, and you are not in it. You don't get it. You're outside criticizing. And in the story, the elder brother is that role. He takes that critical role. 
He has nothing to criticize. He hasn't lost anything. In fact, he's gained everything. Go back to verse 12. The father has divided the estate. The elder brother already has his total inheritance. Two-thirds of everything that the father had is now in the possession of the elder brother. He's been wonderfully blessed. That's why the father, when he says, everything I have is yours, he's being literal. He has distributed all of his wealth. But the elder brother isn't satisfied. You You ask yourself, how can a person be so ungrateful who has received so much? He's ungrateful because he doesn't understand love. He doesn't understand his father's love. He thinks he has to work for this, lo- for this love. He says in verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've, I've earned being loved. That means you doing good things for us. I've worked hard. It's not fair. Where's, where's my party? And that's exactly the attitude of the Pharisees. They have come to believe that you gain the love of God by being worthy of that love. They have come to believe that if I live by the standards, live by the law, keep the righteous things that God wants me to do, all these rules and regulations, that I'm earning uh, love from the Father, which gives me special blessing. In fact, if I'm good enough, in a sense, God owes me that blessing. And they're just where the elder brother was. You owe me a party. I've been doing so good. But rather, the blessings that come to us are always gifts of grace. And you don't earn grace. God gives it to you for love. And when you think about it, the elder brother receives much of the same attention from the father that the younger brother did. In verse 28, the father notices that he's missing, and he goes out to him. He pleads with him. He explains things to him, just like he no doubt pled with the younger brother not to to leave. In verse 32, the father shares his heart with his older brother. He says, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's the end of the story. This story doesn't come to a conclusion. It stops still unended because the story is inevitably a question for the hearer. And the question is, how will you respond Where will you place yourself in the story? We need to always remember that we have a gracious heavenly Father, not a celestial boss who wants to bark orders at us, and that blessings come not as wages for well-done labor, but as gifts of grace. But he's asking us to place ourselves and the Pharisees and all those who listen, place themselves in the story. Where, Where are you? Are you in the distant country, alienated from the one who loves you? Are you in the pig pen, receiving the consequences of a a bad definition of freedom and now bound in that kind of situation? Or are you standing outside the party, criticizing those who are rejoicing in the love that they experience? Or are you in the embrace of your Father? Because that's where you should be. Because no matter where you've been or whatever you've done, no matter what you've seen and where you've gone, He still loves you even when you rebel against him. The late Joe Bailey was an author and president of D.C. Cook Christian Publishing Company. He was the director of the InterVarsity Publishing House on the East Coast for a long time, a wise and godly man, teacher and author. But his son was a prodigal. 
His son left home. His son took drugs. He lived in flop houses in the city where they, where they lived. And one night, Joe Bailey got a late-night phone call saying that his son had been arrested. He needed to come down to the police station. But when he went down to the police station, his son wasn't there. He asked around. Nobody knew about his son. Nobody could answer any questions. And so Joe Bailey went over to one of the flop houses where he knew that his son sometimes slept off the effect of the drugs he was on. He entered that house at 2 a.m., and there was a dim light glowing. He had to step over bodies on the floor, and he saw across the room, he saw his son asleep on a mattress, no, no sheets, no covers, just a bare mattress, out cold. And he went over to his son, and he kissed his son on the cheek. The report that he had been arrested was false, but he was there in that flop house nonetheless. Fast forward a number of years. And that son went through rehabilitation, and he came back to the family. He came back to the home. He came back to the Lord. And he was having a conversation with his dad, and this is what the son said. What turned me around was the night you kissed my cheek. You thought I was asleep, but I wasn't. And I laid there, and I said, if my dad loves me this much, I better get my life right with God. Your heavenly Father loves you that much. No matter where you are or what you've done, He loves you that much. He always has, and He always will. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your love. We thank You that we can't escape it, that You're always willing to give it. And Lord, we pray that we would be those people who live in the light, in the shadow of that love, and that we give love away as well. Help us do just that, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.